I want to begin today's episode with a quote from William of Tyre. And he's a medieval chronicler writing about the fall of Jerusalem in 1099. And he's writing about it much after the fact. In fact, he's not even born yet. But he writes, quote, It was impossible to look upon the vast numbers of the slain without horror. Everywhere lay fragments of human bodies, and the very ground was covered with the blood of the slain. It was not alone the spectacle of headless bodies and mutilated limbs strewn in all directions that roused horror in all who looked upon them. Still more dreadful was it to gaze upon the victors themselves, dripping with blood from head to foot, an ominous sight which brought terror to all who met them. It is reported that within the temple enclosure alone 10,000 infidels perished. In addition to those who lay slain everywhere throughout the city in the streets and squares, the number of whom was estimated as no less. End quote. Now, this bloodshed was just another consequence of a conflict that had been truly going on for centuries, and that would continue to go on for many, many, many years. Some historians, such as Paul Crawford, say this kind of bloodshed is often mythologized in today's culture. Others do not. But, regardless, many people were slain, including innocent women and children. And you know, you have to ask yourself, what ideas, what ideas and motivations were going around at this time that would, that would cause, you know, this many people to go on such an expedition, and go on such a crusade. And it's important to remember here that... To them, at this time, these were not called crusades. That word did not exist in our sense. What they called them were pilgrimages. They were pilgrims. And to me, that totally changes the narrative. And these crusades, and especially the first crusade and many, many others, sort of how it was, it was officially done in the beginning was it had to be called by the Pope. Uh, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, what... what Today, what would happen if the Pope called a crusade? Would even be the context? Nothing, probably, right? You see the word crusade a lot used by politicians today. But, you know, if, if, if the Pope today called a, you know, traditional crusade in the medieval sense, who would respond, right? Maybe Biden, Biden's Catholic. Uh, I'm kidding. But you kind of ask yourself, you know, the, the Pope today has, he's one of the most influential people, right? And he's authority, right, on, on a lot of subjects. But but the, the the Pope, even in the medieval time, right, before the First Crusade and, and you know, for, for a very long time during this period, he was even more influential, especially, you know, especially calling up armies almost, people responding. You know, it kind of gets into the time period they were living in. And so that's what I want to first touch on here today is, is the power of the Pope, because I really feel like that sets the... It sets the groundwork, like, you know... Uh, how much power this guy has and how much influence he has and, and, and it sets like how these crusades came in, into being. I think sort of at the center here is the Pope. You'll see why, because the Pope has something known as papal su supremacy, right? Sort of like papal primacy. Is that it? Papal supremacy is the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that says the Pope has supreme, the supreme and this universal power over the whole church, right? He can exercise it the Pope, right? He is a bishop. He is sort of the head bishop, the first among equals. You've heard that. 
If the bishops were the Wiggles, the Australian kids music band, then the Pope would be sort of like Greg. You'd be the yellow shirt guy. He's sort of the leader there, but they're all equals. And the Catholic Church traces the Pope's authority back to Jesus and the Apostles. And among the Apostles, there was Peter, who's sort of the head Apostle. And Jesus sort of delegates his power to Peter to expand the Church, right? And, you know, it's, it's, it's the argument goes all throughout the Bible, but mostly a verse I saw was Matthew sixteen eighteen. And Matthew, right, was written... After Jesus died, historians don't really know an exact date, but somewhere at the end of the first century. Um, Matthew sixteen eighteen goes, quote, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. End quote. Hades threw me off there a little bit. You know, that's kind of, that's why translations are so important, because they could totally change. They change the meaning. So I changed, I, I looked at the the King James version and they changed Hades to hell. So if that fits better with you. It's important here because a lot of Protestants, they don't hold this view. Right? You see there's this Protestant Reformation and they say, oh no, the Pope doesn't have, have the right here, right? So in, a, in effect, the Pope with his power of papal, papal supremacy sort of almost draws this direct line to God. You know, it's not a literal line going across the Mediterranean. I can't kick sand over it. And, you know, the whole church, you know, the church down the street comes crumbling down. Yeah, but maybe Protestants wish that's how it was. I don't know. Because, see, the Pope uses this influence politically. The coronation of 800 AD, Pope Leo III crowns Charlemagne king. Because, you know, emperor of the Romans. And this is sort of, in effect, nullifying the legitimacy of the East, the Empress Irene of Constantinople. Sort of the West not taking note of the East. Another reason this is so important is because the act, the Pope's act of declaring him king sets an important precedent. One, right, it's he's declaring him king and it establishes that the Pope has the right to choose the king in the first place. And it also allows the Pope to pl- place his own superiority above the king. You know, if you know you want to be king, you better be and go with the Pope because ultimately he has all, po- all the power over you. And this came with the claim of excommunication. You know, you mess up, you're out of there. If I'm the Pope and I say, you know, little old Charlemagne, oh, my DoorDash order is here, go pick up my hamburger... And he doesn't do it. Well, guess what? I'm going to install a new king. A Burger King, if you will. Sorry. So you see, you no longer have God backing up your claim. Then what are you going to do? You need that power of the Pope. So you see sort of here how powerful the Pope's influence becomes politically. And you'll see this as a driver for the Crusades here. And the Crusades, which were a very slow evolution... Right, started with um, some Turks, right? They were conquering some important land in Anatolia and the Byzantine Empire. The land was important to, uh, to Anatolia, uh, to the Byzantine Empire, because it acted as sort of the breadbasket, right? You need food, you need to feed the empire. And if you lose your breadbasket, you're in a little bit of trouble. And 
the emperor of Byzantium, Alexius I, kind of calls right, calls the aid of the West. He's like the Pope. The Pope jumps on this opportunity, right, to show that Christendom, right, they're still united in a way because of the you know there's the Great Schism in 1054, right, that's sort of splitting of the church. But, you know, it's more than that, especially this what's about to happen the First Crusade because there's this added dimension to the aid that. Pope Urban II brings, which was the Pope at the time. This is added added dimension of a holy war, right? We've all heard that in holy war, and since here I'm going to be talking about a just war. And this holy war, you know, would go on to ignite uh, jihad and you know the Muslim Near East and lead to you know arguably the Protestant Reformation and secular thought. And you'll see, just war here is very integral to the First Crusade, and it still is today, and still is evolving, right? It's still highly discussed. And just war, you know, here in the sense of the Holy War, but just war is not, ah, oh, come on, Mom, it's just war, be cool, you know? No, right, this is just war in the sense of justice, very something very high in a lot of, you know, Philosophical circles, intellectual circles, is justice was always you know seen as like the highest virtue in in some places, and just war is this criteria for making sure war is morally and ethically right. Right, it's sort of a set of conditions. Uh, so let's say that you know within a country, particularly maybe in the United States, if there is a dispute, you appeal to an authority, sort of like if two siblings sort of appeal to their parents if they're in an argument. You know, I can't lock my sibling in a closet because he or she, you know, stole my goldfish. Well, maybe I can, but, you know, that wouldn't be right. So, you know, because my parents ultimately have a monopoly on power within the household in the same way that a government, right, has a monopoly on power within their borders. And in the United States, you appeal, you know, appeal to your parents, but you appeal through a court system. If you don't like the, the decision, then you can appeal to a higher authority, a higher court, and you appeal and appeal and appeal until ultimately you get to the Supreme Court, which ultimately has the final judgment. So what they say, whatever they say, is it's, it's how it's going to be, right? So very, very important precedence there also, and then also with judicial um, activism or action, right? So sort of like in this state of nature, right, where there is, you know, countries existing, uh, there is, you know, there there's no government in between them, right? There's no temporal entity that you can ultimately appeal to. I guess sort of today there's Ukraine, but, you know, you can see how that sort of works. I'm sorry, not Ukraine, the United Nations. I was thinking about Ukraine. There's the United Nations, which you can sort of appeal to, but yeah. But near, I'm here, I'm, I'm talking more about the medieval age in this context. And so if you were, if your whole country, right, was going to war with another, ultimately you would need sort of a just reason that people can get behind. Not only that, but most importantly, right, you, your reason needs to be justified in the eyes of your God, which is ultimately who you're appealing to. Because, you know, you're appealing to him if he's ultimately, if he decides everything, right, your God then you want to make sure that you're on the winning side. You don't want to piss this guy off. So you better make sure that you're in you're in good with the guy upstairs. If I invade Canada for no reason, I'm going to seem like a warmonger. 
for Aristotle, a just war. He gets into it in his politics. He says a just war is, quote, a war that must be for the sake of peace, end quote. So if I'm if he's saying, you know, you're invaded and they're going to slaughter the men and take the women and children into slavery, then you have the right to defend yourself. Right? That is your right. That would be seen justifies in the eyes of, you know, God or the gods for the Romans. Treaty breaking, right? Treaties between countries was, was sort of the laws that govern nations and breaking them was a huge justification. The Romans were often very superstitious. Before wars, they would have these, they would require these rituals of sacrifice to make sure that what they are doing is pleasing to the gods. There's a story during the First Punic War, which was fought between Rome and Carthage. This guy named Publius Claudius Pulcher, he's on this huge naval fleet, right? He's on one of the ships and it's in charge of attacking Carthage. And he's waiting here and he's getting impatient because there's this ritual that they needed to have where they would have these called sacred chickens. And the priests would throw grain on the chicken, through the chickens, and I guess they would study the way the chickens ate the grain, and they would read it somehow, and read the omens of it. So it was important, right, if the chickens ate the grain in a particular way, oh, it's, it's, a, weather's great, right, it's good, the gods are in, on our side, go attack. But the chickens weren't doing it. So instead, Publius Claudius took the chickens and he chucked them in the water and said, quote, if they do not wish to eat, let them drink, end quote. Obviously, to the Romans, this was not seen as right. He, back in Rome, he was fined for incompetence, right? You know, oh, what are you doing, Publius? You idiot. This is the newest science. Who are you to argue with the pecking of the chicken? He was also fined for impiety, right? Going against religion because religion is huge. Religion is, has all the answers, during this during this time period, so it goes to show you how important, you know, not only how Romans took war, but during this time period, how important it was to make sure that what you're doing was pleasing to the gods, right? The gods, you know, they weave the the fates, right? That the fates. So you need God on your sides, and the Christians here, you know, Christianity, Jesus, turn the other cheek, right? Love thy neighbor, very peaceful. They sort of learn that, well, you know, war is kind of a part. It's not really going away. In in some circumstances, you know, I think it would be okay. They This guy named Augustine takes uh, the view of Aristotle and Cicero, right, and kind of evolves it to a Christian sense. You know, he wants wars to be seen as morally right and justified in the eyes of God. Augustine, in his work, City of God, sets out four conditions and takes sort of the central view of self-defense. You know, if, if an individual has a right to protect his or herself in extreme circumstances, you know, they should be able to, you know, if, 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 they, have went, if, had, if they have property in themselves, right, they have a right to defend that, even if that includes killing the other person, if that's how it has to be. If I'm Bruce Wayne's dad, and I, you know, my the drug addict's going to kill me and my family, well, then I have a right, right? If I kill him, I think it would be seen as just, right? Augustine also here says that unjust peace is bad. If you have peace and it's it's not just, it's not right, that's bad, that's sinful. To him, ju justice, right, it was the highest value, right? Justice was above peace. In the city of God, he says, quote, 
They who have waged war in obedience to the divine command or in conformity with his laws have represented in their persons the public justice or the wisdom of government and in this capacity have put to death wicked men. Such persons have by no means violated the commandment, thou shalt not kill. End quote. That's sort of a tangent, but Augustine also says something like, if you're living under a tyrant, that you should ultimately deal with it. He had a very pessimistic view, right? He said that there there can never really be heaven on earth. Uh, and, and if you had a tyrant, that it was sort of God's will. You'll see later Christian thinkers wrestle with this idea. No, sort of ultimately rely on free will, right? The choice to overthrow the tyrant. But it, Augustine sets out four conditions here. He calls jus ad bellum. That means justice of war. And the first one is that there must must have proper authority. So, in today we think of someone, a government, with proper authority as someone who is you know, democratically elected, a democratically elected leader, or at least approved of by the people. Uh, to Augustine, a leader was probably someone who was chosen by God. So, to him, the Pope would have been sort of the 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 leader right the legitimate leader and the second thing Augustine Augustine writes out is this war must be de- it must be defensive it must be in response to a wrong and you're starting to see the justifications here for the first crusade lineup you know the holy land right it was ultimately taken from them they were wronged these pilgrims who were venturing there to the Holy Land, or they were being robbed, or they were being killed. You know, most would just end up turning back. Oh, hey, Jim, you know, how was the pilgrimage? Oh, yeah, we didn't go. Yeah, some guys were staring at us menacingly. It's like New Jersey over there. I apologize if anyone from New Jersey, I'm kidding. Your state's absolutely beautiful. Great people, delicious food. Music was incredible. I've never been, though, so. So, you know, you had to make sure if you were a pilgrim, you went in these heavily armed group. That's kind of what it came to. And also to Augustine, if if you watch something wrong or bad that would happen, then that would sort of make you a guilty party. Right? There's the thing in Seinfeld, right? They watched a crime being committed and they didn't do anything about it. It's kind of controversial at the time, right? I think it was uh, maybe the, the, the ending, maybe the final episode or something. But anyways, excuse me. There's also the third condition Augustine sets out. War must be done out of necessity. It must be done as a last resort. Everything else must be tried first. If my neighbor is learning how to play the violin at 3 a.m. and it sounds like chalk being scraped, scraped against a chalkboard and sets my teeth on edge, well, then I should do everything in my power to resolve the dispute peacefully. And if he continues to do so, then I'll take up arms, I'll paint a cross on my shirt, sacrifice a jelly donut by eating it, and then I'll go crusading against him all the way up one flight of stairs. Or maybe maybe the elevator if I've had a long day. I'm kidding. But then the fourth fourth condition Augustine sets out here is that you must have just intentions. You must redress inquiry or peace. Augustine believed that a good leader, right, in the Christian sense, would be someone you know who's Christian, and if they're a Christian, then they'll have they'll have good intentions. So as we can see here, right, and we don't have an exact copy of the Pope Pope's speech, Pope Urban II's speech when he called the Crusades, but we have sort of accounts written after the fact, and we kind of piece them together, and a lot of them have sort of overlap in areas, and one of the ways that overlaps, right, that 
in the eyes of Pope Benedict, this, this the war, the crusade was it was for it was for good intentions. You'll see here Aquinas expands the idea to the conduct of war, how soldiers should conduct themselves. You know, even today there's a debate of you know, you know, if, if, how the winner should, even should conduct themselves. Like, you know, you beat the Japanese in World War Two. You know, what would be justified to do now? But Aquinas, right, and all these people today, right, they were born after the First Crusade. So I'm sort of relying here on Augustine. And now I kind of want to look at how these, the just war theory reflects on the motivations and the ideas behind the First Crusade through the eyes of the church and through the eyes of the pilgrims, the crusaders here. It's a very Eurocentric-focused episode today. And I want to look at the, sort of the ideology behind the First Crusade. I'm going to be relying on a chapter from the book uh, Palgrave Advances in the Crusades. This chapter is by Jean Flory. He's a French historian. I think he specializes in the Crusades in medieval history. First, I want to look at how the church during this time, right, this massive organization is preparing knights you know, previously for they're sort of evolving and preparing these knights for fighting for the church. They often vilified and excommunicated those who took weapons against them. An example here is you know, Pope Leo the Ninth recruited some Germans to protect some lands and promised them spiritual rewards. He said, "If you fight, oh, you know, oh, you know, I'll put a good a good word in with God." Right? They ended up all being slaughtered. But you know, Leo said he kept his word. Uh, after Milan wouldn't accept some of the church reforms, Gregory recruits these guys, these. Um, soldiers of Christ, these Milites Christi, which would be used as a name for the First Crusaders. And also at this time, there's this idea of of paradise through fighting. You know, this was beginning to be very popular during this time. Quote, many scholars have underlined that in the West, in the 11th century, popular religious belief began to concede that it was possible to win paradise through dying with one's weapon in hand if one was carrying on the good fight for the church in Christendom, end quote. So this is sort of the popular belief, the layman belief, sort of layman preachers who were going out to kind of recruit for this crusade. The Pope ultimately didn't, didn't really believe that many people would even come. But these layman preachers, right, they, they, they kind of get, you know, the common folks start to believe that in this idea that, you know, you, you fight here. You're 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 in good, right? You're you're promised the paradise. All right, it kind of gets into the idea of uh, you know this plenary indulgence, right? This escape from purgatory, and these milites Christi, the soldiers of Christ, right? Call that because they're going to defend the Holy Land. You know, the, the land that was once Christian under the Roman Empire, so they saw themselves. And the, you know they, they, the West saw themselves as this continuation, sort of, of the Roman Empire. So you couldn't hear Augustine would have somewhat agreed. And the Pope, the Pope here has a legitimate authority here. The idea has the good intentions, ultimately, he would argue. And you know he's going off to defend the Holy Land. They're, the Crusaders, it's defensive, right? They're, they're righting a wrong. But really, to better understand the intentions, I think we have to look at a more detailed account some of these crusaders or I guess at the time called pilgrims and there were many motivations 
the most dominant was spiritual and religious. Getting to the Holy One, like why I said, it was becoming harder and harder, especially 1055, there was Al-Hakim, who burned down lots of holy things in Jerusalem, right? And he you know, desecrated a lot of you know, Christian you know, landmarks, um, including the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And there's also this guy named, or excuse me, this in Al-Hakim is better known as the Nero of Islam, if that gives you a better idea. So there's a lot of spiritual motivations going in. There's the pro remissione peccatorum, the pilgrimage and remission of sins. I hope I said that right. <laughs> I apologize. And it applied sort of many times before the, the first sort of holy war. It, there was precedent for it. But here it's really used for the crusades. It's sort of the pilgrimage would act as, the crusade would act as this sort of assurance, like this counterbalance to any evil you commit. Quote, Canon 9 of the Council of Clermont, or if you enjoy raising the white flag, Clermont. <laughs> Sorry, Clermont. But I'm going to say Clermont. He says, quote, If anyone prompted by piety alone, and not to earn honor or money, will set out on the road to Jer Jerusalem in order to liberate God's church, that journey will suffice for all penance. End quote. Canon 9 is a reference to the assembly called by Pope Urban II to cast some church reforms, you know, included here calling calling the crusade. And penance is, right, this counterforce. It's this making amends of your sins, sort of after the fact, sort of like reparations, I suppose, just something bad. So it's like saying 10 Hail Marys after you steal one of those little gibbets that you put on your Crocs. Even though you don't even own a pair of Crocs, you just really wanted it because you were like five years old and you're just so pretty. Sorry, but your penance here is, is more something like the church sort of wants you to do. And an act of penance evolves here as a pilgrimage. Like the pilgrimage counts. You see, over time it evolves into a sort of indulgence that the church gives out. The Pope here is calling right for the defensive war of the Holy Land, righting the wrongs for the knights. This could be a very spiritual reward almost in a way that sort of they're doing it almost for like a king, right? And Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, right? Gawain takes up the challenge, right? In order to be seen as sort of virtuous in Arthur's eyes. And if you would go on these journeys where you sort of promised martyrdom, that's also maybe another motivation here. Martyrdom by Urban II, really, maybe, perhaps not. Two arguments that are going against it. One is that the doctrines of martyrdom was not very well established. You sort of had to systematically define out, right, you know, what counts as martyrdom in the, in, in the church. There wasn't really anything like that. And, and then also the crusaders were asking for prayers, right? They're prayers for the dead, dead comrades. And the, the Pope probably did not have the official authority during this time. So the crusaders here, right? They're going back to, to reclaim this old land, defending what's rightfully theirs. And going back to get in with God, you know, get those sweet, sweet rewards. You know, really religious reasons you can see here. Religiously for them, these are very good intentions. 
There's the socio-religious motivations. There is this appeal to a feudal community. The Pope, Pope Urban here, is the reason that, you know, Jesus died to save his people. You know, you know, in return, he asked that they deliver his people. You know, you deliver his people from oppression and take up his cross. There's no greater love than dying for a brother. And the knights would have looked at this in a maybe perhaps more feudal aspect. It's from the chapter. It says, quote, historians judge that these reasons, even if the Pope was quoting them directly from the gospel, which is far from being certain because they were clearly given a warlike dimension, were most probably understood by the knights from a different point of view, near to clan solidarity and revenge and the love for one's neighbor that Jesus preached, end quote. So you're, there's this community based on a single religion. There's us, there's, there's them, and there's this attack on Christendom. Christendom was really this idea, really starting to evolve to a more of a concrete idea during this period. So they didn't really, you know, they didn't care that someone was, who it was. They just cared someone, cared someone was doing it in the first place. Someone was attacking Christendom in the first place. It's like if a rival school comes over, maybe it doesn't even have to be rival, right? But if the school comes over and starts spray painting and destroying school monuments, I mean, you'll be pretty pissed. Maybe you are the chancellor or, you know, the school council, whoever, they're like, oh, you know, go, go mess them up, go mess that school up, and, you know, maybe we'll give you a free degree. <laughs> it's not exactly like that, right, but a little example. And the Christians, right, they're close to, like, demonizing these Muslims. Like, these, these Muslims are, Islam is abominable, and it's perverse. Like, they're more like pagans. And there's also this emotional argument that the Pope used. There's this, you know, fear. Fear that the Muslims would continue their invasion towards the East, right? Muslims, or the Ottoman Empire would end up getting close here to Vienna in 1683. So there's this emotional argument stirring the feelings. We see this every day in advertising and politics and lots of places where people are trying to persuade you of something. A great example, a commercial we've all seen, Sarah McLaughlin. In the arms of an angel, right? Bet you didn't know I could sing. That's right. But you're seeing, showing, you know, in this commercial, they're showing these big puppy eyes, these poor animals. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, give us money, right? They're kind of getting at that emotional side for some donations. And especially in these big groups, you know, very... Because, you know, at this time, right, it was every, I think during this time, it's hard to understand how just on everyone's mind it was about their salvation. They wanted to, like, it, religion was constantly on their mind. It's a little bit different today, right, in a more secular technological society. But their medieval age in this time was very religious society. Everything pretty much had to do with religion almost. And you saw in these big groups, right, Everyone's feeling this way. It's stirring all these emotions and it's sort of reinforcing it on everyone. And then not only that, there is this sort of, everyone starts saying, you know what, the crusade here, this is destined to happen in the first place. There's this eschatological dimension. I hope I said that right. I had to sound it out right next to the word here. <laughs> eschatological. But you know, the view on everyone's minds that, you know, God directs the course of history. 
You kind of see here, right? There's that appealing to God because if he directs everything, then ultimately you need him on your side because if he's going to decide who wins or loses this battle, well, you better make sure you're good with him, right? And the, they saw like the Arab invasion was God punishing the Christians. There was precedent for this, especially in the Bible. Like God punished the Jews with the invasion of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, right? But it was sort of for their own good. Like if my kid, well, I don't, I don't have a kid, but if if I had a kid, his name would be something super badass, like Dragonfire Thunderwolf. But anyways, if Dragonfire Thunderwolf keeps running into oncoming traffic, well, you know, I need to get the message across somehow, right? You may have a super cool name, but gosh darn it, you're a loose cannon, Dragonfire Thunderwolf. Yeah, you're not invincible, and I've tried everything to get the message across. Don't run out in traffic. But it's not working. I can't help but understand that. So, you know, maybe I'll have to use a punishment, right? But it's ultimately for his own good, right? I'll have to cause a little bit of suffering, a degree. And it's sort of here, it's this idea in, in the Christian theology of free will, right? God sort of punishing and ultimately you have sort of the choice here. And the Pope here, and everyone starts to say that this crusade is part of God's plan, right? He's just sort of prophesizing it here, and they start to chant, Deus Volt, right? This means God wills it. I mean, talk about making sure your war is just, right? It's seen as morally right. If you're a crusader, and everyone starts saying, you know, that ultimately God is saying you have to do this, well, then who are you to argue with that, right? If morality ultimately comes from God, right? In the, in the Christian sense, then, right, if morality ultimately comes from God and God is saying do it, well, then, by God, you're morally in the right here. It's like if next time I want a Slim Jim, right, if I want to steal a Slim Jim from my girlfriend, she says no, well, I'll be like, well, you know, God wills it, right? God wants me to have this Slim Jim. It's already been decided, right? But, you know, obviously, not exactly like that. I'm joking, but... Then there's also this sort of idea during this time of conversion. This argument, I don't think, holds water that well, because it probably wasn't a huge motivation for a lot of these crusaders. Because you couldn't really force somebody to convert. A lot of their doctrines really wouldn't allow that. It wasn't really sort of, yeah, like I said, allowed. It was more, this crusade was more about finding their salvation, and it was about showing the Christian, how the Christian God is superior, right, through winning battles, because, you know, God will decide this battle. And if God wants us to win, then that's how it is. So there's more maybe likely, uh, a, you know, material motivation involved, perhaps. Quote, it is still more probable that these religious motivations were supplemented by material considerations, since heretics' lands could legally be confiscated for their own goods. End quote. So maybe there was also this sort of material motivation involved. But ultimately, you're starting to see that, you know, a lot of these motivations and intentions are sort of lining up with, uh, in a sense, that in a sense that we justified with God. But like I said, there was these socioeconomic motivations. Uh, some scholars say material motivations were big, big, and the Pope knew it. And the Pope, one of his speeches, you know, he says, quote, out of piety alone, and not to earn honor or money, end quote. 
So he's saying here, you know, you know, if you better all be, you know, you better have good hearts here. You better not, you know, going to go doing this to loot the, lo- uh, loot the local target, right? If I'm a, maybe a crusader here and he's he's talking about material motivations, he's like, oh, I know all of you have a good heart, but some of you, and he looks directly at me, <laughs> yeah, maybe not, but you know, it's, it's hard, you know, it's kind of hard to believe here that maybe... Um, at least some of these individuals maybe weren't had the greatest uh, intentions, but it's it's more widely accepted. A lot of experts on the crusades that you know this was very religious, and that a lot of these people had very pure motivations because there's you know the the people that didn't have very pure motivations. You know it's understandable because ultimately there's that human element involved. Uh, quote, it has been argued above that the majority of the knights had other motives, which were based above all on their warlike profession and their new dignity acquired by the exercise of this profession in holy war, end quote. But yeah, like I said, you know, one lecture I was listening to, he's like, yeah, you know, mostly it was religious. Uh, the crusades were not very profitable at all. And not only that, but a lot of these crusaders were not even expecting to come back in the first place. You know, they thought, okay, well, I'm just going to go here. You know, I'll die and I'll go vibe in heaven. (laughs) I saw somewhere there was about a 70% death rate on the First Crusade. Now, that is absolutely insane. The Soviet life expectancy in World War II at the Battle of Stalingrad, if I were a Soviet soldier during the Battle of Stalingrad, my life expectancy was 24 hours. And, I mean, that was a, a catastrophe, right, in the military sense. If you were participating in D-Day during the Normandy invasions, right? If you were, you know, participating in, you know, any element involved there, your chance of dying was around 3%. But you'll see sort of these socioeconomic motivations. The Crusaders saw plundering as part of a, part of the mission almost. For a lot of soldiers, plundering is where you make all your money. Although I said, you know, for the Crusaders, it wasn't very profitable, but to the, maybe someone like the Romans during their time, pro- plundering and, and pillaging was very common, and it was considered due to them, you know, unless your commander said you couldn't do it, which would piss a lot of them off. But these pillage, these, these plundering of these cities often took days, weeks sometimes, I saw, like the sacking of Carthage took a week. So war is often very profitable, unless it was something like a Pyrrhic victory, right? You know, you win it, but what cost? And you, as you'll see, we don't get into the other Crusades. Excuse me. But but the Crusades sort of evolve past the religious, and you'll see material motivations become a whole lot of a bigger motivation. So, you know, these intentions may not... Or this, these intentions or conducts may not even line up necessarily, right, with just war, just crimes. Uh, and you'll see in Jerusalem and the fall of Jerusalem in 1099, like you see mo- both Muslims and Jews defending the city against the Crusaders because they knew what was about to come. And like I said in the beginning, like the sources vary, but the Crusaders end up slaughtering a large portion of the Jew and Muslim population, including women and children. Right, there's blood up to their ankles. So you see, right, not everyone had the necessarily right the greatest motivations that would fall in line, right, with Aquinas' good intentions or Augustine's or Augustine's, excuse me. 
but like I said, you will probably wouldn't want to be born during the medieval period because your sacking of the city, right, it was really no different from any other sacking. And at the time, right, the siege of Jerusalem, I saw one account where it would say, you know, most Muslims were sort of indifferent to it, except for, you know, some accounts, maybe some poets somewhere. And Muslims sort of at this time, right, they were sort of fractured almost. But there's still, I mean, there's still like powerful, you know, centralized authority, but it was very sort of more fractured than it would usually be. You'll see some local states, right, when the, the, the crusaders were marching around, you know, trying to find Jerusalem or something, some local states would, they just saw them, these crusaders, it's just, you know, sort of this, another elite power that's coming in to take over the other elite power, which, you know, took over the other elite power. So it really didn't affect them in any way. And you'll see that they used these crusaders to sort of use these, they used these crusaders as an advantage for their own sort of politics. They'd be like a huge crusader army rolls up and you're some local king and you're like, oh, you know, I'll show you the way past this mountain pass. You know, just go pillage and burn my, but this this rival local state over there. And, you know, I'll help you out. You'll see a lot of that done during this time. But really quick before I, I end here, I just want to look at the Muslim view of all this. Just because, you know, I, you know, this is a very, very Eurocentric sort of podcast so far, right, this episode. But I feel like maybe just, because it is interesting looking at it from both perspectives. And sort of the, the Islam, like the, the the Muslims controlled, right, Jerusalem for about 500 years before the, in 1099. Um, you know, during the, the Muslims did not see the Europeans the same. Uh, they saw it very differently. They saw the Europeans very differently for them. Um, this this conflict, right, this was a, sort of a continuation of a conflict that had been raging on. Right, for, for a very long time, right? Yeah, the Norman recon- reconquest of Islamic Sicily in 1060. That went on for a while. And there's sort of the Spanish reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula in the 8th century. So this had been going on for a while. And the Muslims saw the Europeans, or Europe in general, as this kind of cold and backwards place full of savages, right? These savage people. And, you know, while these savages were you know, great fighters, right? These were amazing fighters. They weren't necessarily super intelligent. It's like if a lion, right? A lion is, is, is a great fighter and it'll mess you up, kid. But ultimately, he's not as smart as us, right? He's not as civilized. And you know, they felt that their civilization was much more superior, both culturally and technologically, like scientifically. And this is not this is often quite true because the Islamic world was very scientifically advanced, much more advanced than the Europe and the Christian world. They saw Christianity as an incomplete and wrong religion. They often referred to the Europeans as Franks, and they saw that you know because the European climate was so cold and and you know terrible and horrible to live in and this would contribute to the way people would evolve right they saw their climate as sort of like the peak like if you live in our climate then you're the most evolved if you live in europe then you're destined to be this way so here there's this whole other side right to the story here that i won't get into but you'll see the crusaders would go on to do incredibly well surprisingly well really a lot of the Crusaders sort of were not expecting to get this far even to win. 
uh, they sort of helped out Byzantine. They just kind of kept going, and they got to Jerusalem, took it, 70% death rate, but then they just kind of looked around and were like, okay, yeah, now, now what do we do, right? There are supposedly seven other crusades, which would be nowhere near as successful. They, some of them are just absolutely hilarious, sort of a total mess. Um, some honorable mentions, right, and they may, may include the Children's Crusade in 1212. It was sort of this sanctioned popular crusade. Um, that you know the Pope never really officially called for it. I didn't get into this, but during the First Crusade, when everyone was you know there was a kind of that everyone's getting ready to go, this group of really just really like popular sort of common folk, they don't want to wait for you know any any sort of you know, systematic way of doing things. They sort of just all got together and marched over to help uh, to go invade right the Holy Land and help Byzantium. They all, they all got slaughtered, and so the Turks kind of saw that as, oh, this is what's going to happen? All right, we have nothing to worry about. So the, the Children's Crusade in 1212 was sort of, it was similar to that. It wasn't ever called for by the Pope. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't completely children. It was made up of people of all ages, mostly poor. They ultimately failed and got killed. Then there's the Fourth Crusade, which I could do a whole podcast on. <laughs> Quite interesting. It sort of started out as this attempt to take Jerusalem. But at the end, it ended up with a sacking of Constantinople, which was a Christian city. Right? You kind of have to wonder how the hell that even happened. But yeah, ultimate goal, right? Recovering the Holy Land, right? Giving those lands back to Byzantium. Setting up these these Christian states. You know, it was a great success, right? Yeah, but the Christian, the, the First Crusade would end up setting up the pieces for the next crusade, the Second Crusade, right? There's... They would lose Edessa, which was one of the territories that they had set up. So in conclusion here, we have the, you know, the crusade, right, in the eyes of the Augustinian argument, right, the Pope here having the authority, right, chosen by God, traced all the way back to Jesus and Peter. There's the sort of defensive aspect of it, protecting the Holy Land, righting a wrong in their eyes, right sort of arguably maybe done out of necessity, right? They're coming to protect Byzantium. Byzantium needed their help at protecting Christendom, right? There's these pilgrims, right? They couldn't get through. These pilgrims they had to go in and make a clear path, right? And the, the just intentions, right? The Pope, the Pope's a good Christian, calls a crusade. Sort of the religious motivations of a lot of the crusaders, although not all, maybe. So you start to see this idea of a just war, where that is seen as morally right and justified in the eyes of God, as long as you know it follows some rules. All of the Crusades combined resulted, and sources vary here, but they resulted in millions, maybe a million, maybe millions of lives lost on all sides. So we can see here today, war has not changed much. Countries, right, still relying on these justifications. There's still lots of death, you know, depending, you know, maybe just a few thousand to to millions now with nuclear weapons, right, today. It could be even scarier, something in the billions, maybe. Walking that tightrope, as Dan Carlin puts it. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed the podcast, guys and girls. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned a lot, or at least I learned something, because I, I know I did when I was researching this. I'll put the show notes. Um, I have a little outline here. I'll put that in the show notes. Quick little disclaimer, right? I'm not an expert here. 
but I, I do tr try to rely on scholarly sources. Uh, but the history, right, with history, it often varies. So if you enjoyed the podcast or you have some sort of feedback, let me know. But if you enjoyed, you know, rate rate me on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Follow and subscribe for more. And I hope you have a good rest of your day or night.